There are a few names First Sergeant Bill Dalton mentions over and over again. The men that came before him who built the foundation of this case over 40 years. They are by far not the only men and women who touched this case. So many people have influenced this investigation from investigators, lab technicians, analysts, and administrators. But there are three standout names that Dalton sees over and over again in reports or hears their voices on interview tapes. And it's those three men that I wanted to talk to the most at the outset of this project. Don Lindsay, Jim Kramer, and Stoney Van. Trying to get in front of all three men was a rude awakening of something I should have already known. In a decades-old investigation, time can be helpful, but it can also be your worst enemy. Yes, technology advances, people can be more willing to speak, but you lose so much. People move on physically, emotionally, or they pass away, and every bit of detail they held in their head, the details that can't be put down on paper because it was a look in someone's eye or a gut feeling, all that is gone. If this case is going to be solved, it's got to be now. This is Red Ball. Soldier, keep on marching on. Head down to to start at the beginning to talk to the first investigators who ever picked up the case, Don Lindsay and Jim Kramer. Dalton said that he'd spoken with Lindsay and he'd been a wealth of information, but he was very sick now. He'd been diagnosed with cancer and he had many days where he just couldn't do an interview. We tried for weeks to sit down with him. One day, both he and his wife stopped returning Dalton's calls we found out that he'd passed away. It hit me like a ton of bricks. We don't have any more time to waste. It's already been too long. From then on, I made contacting these men my top priority. I tried reaching out to Stoney Van. He was the first sergeant right before Dalton, but he wouldn't reply to me. Dalton tried reaching out too, but Van had no interest in meeting. I had one last hope. I reached out to retired detective Jim Kramer, who at this point I'd met months before at the Burger Chef Memorial. Kramer invited me out to his home that he shares with his wife and a small dog that I obviously fell madly in love with. His wife was so gracious and made us both coffee before going out to their porch to read while we were left at their kitchen table to talk about the case. Jim starts by handing me a piece of paper. He says it's an official statement that he gives everyone he talks to that basically says who he is, his involvement in the case, and that officially 
He has no opinion on who did this. Just the case needs to be continually worked until the Indiana State Police can prove who murdered these four kids. When we got past the official paper and into really discussing the case, Kramer tells me that he joined the department in 72. So he was with the Indiana State Police in 78 when Mark, Danny, Jane, and Ruth were abducted. And when the burger chef happened in November of 78, I was here. I got a phone call on Monday or Tuesday to go to Speedway Police Department. They didn't say what for. I went up to the Brownsburg area. I'm not thinking these kids are going to be killed. I'm thinking uh, somebody's holding them somewhere. Then Sunday evening, I went to work, and I had to run over to the post at Puttonville. And when I came in, one of the troopers there said, oh, they found those kids in the burger shop. And I said, where'd they find them at? He says, oh, they're all dead. They killed them down in Johnson County. You could have knocked me over with a feather. That was just a shock. So then... uh, I asked Kramer, how do you work a case back then? I've spent so much time looking at how you solve a 1978 case in 2019, but how do you solve it in 1978? He said the way they operated was off three by five index cards, cards that First Sergeant Dalton says still live in the filing cabin at the Indiana State Police offices. When a tip would come in, you'd be handed a card, and groups of two would run down that lead. Of all the tips he ran down, I asked Kramer if he had a favorite. I mean, come on. I know what your official paper says, but everyone has a favorite. I've heard so many really good theories. What's yours? Well, it's amazing how so many people can look so good for it. Someone will tell me a story, and they can totally sell me on it. I'm like, yeah, I I totally believe that. And then I go talk to the next person who's got their great theory, and I'm like, damn, he looks really good too. Sounds better. Don and I always said that You know, we think we're in the dugout with them. We just don't know who the exact players are. Mm -hmm. And it could be any of five or six different groups, or it could be somebody we've never heard of. I don't think anybody knows who did this. In my mind, I think about this every day, every single day. Bill talked about DNA, and I think that's probably the only answer. Mm -hmm. You know, I've read... I agreed with Kramer. It's something Dalton has been beating into me since we started working together, which, again, was months ago by the time I sat down with Kramer. The reason we're doing this now is because of all the advancements in DNA. And physical evidence is the only thing that we can nail someone with. The knife handle or the gun that were used is probably long gone. Even a confession isn't 100% the end-all be-all if we can't corroborate it with some physical evidence. But we don't have physical evidence here at Kramer's house. He and I won't be the ones to test anything. I came here to get all of the details out of his head about suspects, which there were a lot of, like a lot, a lot. When I asked him about all the angles they ran down over the years, Kramer began a chronological story I'm sure he's played over and over in his mind, revisiting every single one, looking for the players in the dugout. He said very early on in the investigation, they got a lead everyone got really excited about. A gun had been found in someone's yard not too far from the restaurant. It was the same type of gun used to kill Danny and Ruth. And near it was also a discarded Burger Chef cup. They were able to find the person who tossed it fairly quickly because just a day or two before, the same guy who found the gun in his yard said that two people were lurking around acting super suspicious like they were looking for something, which clearly they never found. 
Police were able to track down these two suspects because of a traffic violation that they had in the area around the same time. And when they polygraphed one of them, the guy looked bad, like real bad. He had run-ins with law enforcement in the past, and he was connected to this motorcycle gang. But as bad as he looked, as bad as it all looked, the ballistics didn't match the bullets found at the crime scene. As we keep talking, Kramer brings up two more theories that have gotten a lot of traction over the years. One about a big-time drug dealer who used this event as a distraction from bombings and another murder in the area that he was suspected of being connected to. Yet another theory revolves around a group out of Johnson County. Now, this is the same group that Stoney Van talked to the reporter at Indy Star about. The guys were suspected of committing other robberies around Indianapolis, and they were the ones who used to visit the burger shaft where Jane used to work at before she moved over to Speedway. This group is one that gets mentioned a lot in connection with this case. Their names are familiar to anyone who's probably ever read an article on this case. From everything I can find, I know they were Stoney Van's favorite suspects. He was sure that they were the ones, but just didn't have the evidence to prove it. I'm not 100% convinced of anything, but I will say this. There's something about this group of men that stands out to me. This group that Van had latched onto and the group that Kramer was talking about now, they were from Johnson County, the same area where the victims were killed and left, and they would have been very familiar with the area. And maybe this doesn't mean a whole lot to some people. A lot of people get really caught up in the restaurant itself or where the car was left. But I get really caught up on where Mark, Jane, Ruth, and Danny were found in that rural Johnson County area. When I first met Dalton, he pulled up a map and showed me an approximate area of where they were all found. He said it was a pretty secluded area, but there were a couple of access roads right near each other. The killers picked the one that was most secluded. By luck? Maybe. But Kramer isn't so sure. There was an access road for power lines, just like these high tension lines here. Ran through there, you went Way back up a lane, you can see on the crime scene photos, if you've seen those, there's a house back there where his wife lived. That was the only house back there. If it was somebody from down there, they knew that lane was there, they went there, or if it was somebody just looking for somewhere to get rid of four kids. I will say it was was hard. Don and I'd go down there in the weeks afterwards, and you'd almost miss it. It was, the drive was almost hidden. I mean, it was a lot of- This feels important to me. I couldn't tell you why at the time, but the same way I believed Mark was the key to solving the case, I also think that location in Johnson County is key too. Kramer went on to talk about a separate guy who caught another department's eye from prison. Apparently, he'd been talking a lot, saying he knew what happened, and this other agency pulled him out of state prison and brought him to Indianapolis to make a statement. They kept him for a long time, then released his statement to other agencies, thinking they had their guy. When Kramer and Don Lindsay got a hold of it, 
they were less than pleased. It was the sloppiest thing I've ever seen in my life. It was obvious to me that they'd fed him a lot of information. He'd walk him through this while he was there in the woods. He saw Jane stabbed. How many times was she stabbed once? Well, who stabbed her the second time? You know, just things like that. One of the clerks at the sheriff's department. Kramer might not have a favorite, but it's clear there are some suspects that he's willing to write off. And I don't blame him. With a suspect pool this big, you have to start weeding out the ones that don't make sense. He said this guy was just looking for a way out of state prison, and he thought that if he gives some information on this case, it'd help him. But after Kramer and Don Lindsay reviewed the statement, they took it up with the prosecutor, who agreed that this guy was of no use to the investigation, and he was sent back upstate. After the first couple of years, things died down. Slowly, more and more officers were taken off the case. But Kramer and Lindsay, they stayed on. It wasn't until 81 when they got their next best lead. And it came in a really interesting way. He grew up in Henders County. He went to Avon High School, didn't graduate. He was in the Marion County Jail. We got a call from a counselor there. His name's probably in the file, but had been into it with Gene Freak's brother in the jail. And the guy thought we ought to talk to him. When Kramer goes to talk to this guy, who we're going to refer to in this episode as Adam, his story is bizarre, to say the least. And it keeps changing. Adam says he was there, then he wasn't there, then he was there again. And by the end, he says he was there, but he was in the parking lot of Dunkin' Donuts, and his friend was inside the Dunkin' Donuts when all of this went down. So here's his story. It was like, what if, what if I knew something was going to happen and I went up there just to see? And to summarize, his final version was he went up there. He said the Burger Chef and the Dunkin' Donuts both were going to be robbed. They were both supposed to be inside jobs and that they were going to rob they, whoever this was, was going to rob another place that night the Golden Eagle, but he didn't know what the Golden Eagle was. He thought it was a bar. Well, the Golden Eagle across the street was this American Inn motel. On top of their signs, a big Golden Eagle. It was robbed that night at 7.30. So I thought, hmm. As part of following up this lead, Kramer went out to see Adam's mother, who he lived with at the time. We went and talked to her. They lived out in Avon. I think he was still in jail uh, when we did it. She said that she remembered when the burger chef happened because she remembered the kids being missing and one of them was a gal from Avon High School. She told us that that night that came home with about the time Johnny Carson went over, Friday night, Saturday morning, which would be one o'clock in the morning, and uh, made the comment to her, there's something heavy going down at the Burger Chef and Speedway. And I thought, hmm, how would he know something heavy's going down if he didn't see something? So if nothing else, I think we've all learned that in 1978, everyone told time by the Johnny Carson show. But it's an interesting thing to note, right? Because as I sat there with Kramer, I remembered the witness who said she was watching the Johnny Carson show when she heard someone slam the door of Jane's car. So it could fit. It's tight, though. 
They ditch the car while Carson is still on, drive down to Johnson County, then back up to Avon, which is close to Speedway. The problem is the shots that were heard by an ear witness in Johnson County put the shots at around 1.20 in the morning. But the human memory is faulty. Having an eye or an ear witness isn't all it's cracked up to be. And Kramer says as much too. But these eyewitnesses and ear witnesses all kind of make you go, hmm, just like Kramer did when he was talking to me. Kramer had a lot of hmm moments, but she can't build a case on hmm. And this goes back to needing physical evidence. However, when you build up enough moments like this, there might be something there. And I had one of those moments when Dalton told me about an interesting report that he'd come across in one of the binders. He said it was the very last page in one of the binders, a report written by Jim Kramer in the early 80s. It said Kramer had wanted to talk to the female eyewitness from the scene again, the one who said she saw the bearded man and the clean-shaven man, because he thought she was lying. The binders don't go in chronological order, so Dalton hadn't found the follow-up report yet, and we didn't know what Kramer had found. This was huge for me. If the eyewitness was lying, A, why? But B, this means that for all these years, we've been looking for a bearded man and a clean-shaven man that might not have even existed? Of course, Dalton told me this like at the very end of the meeting as I'm walking out the door. So whoever tells you investigations in real life aren't like the ones on TV is lying because that is a series cliffhanger if I've ever heard one. Dalton told me to ask Kramer about it when I talked to him. And for my entire interview with Kramer, I'd been dying to bring it up. But I didn't have to because the next words out of Kramer's mouth answered my question. So we have Adam and his friend. Adam says he's sitting in the car because he knew something was going to go down. And he said that his friend went inside the Dunkin' Donuts. Well, it turns out that the friend used to date our eyewitness. And moreover, he was never in her story all those years before. She said that no one was in the store. When Kramer confronted her about this in the 80s, she tried to say the same thing. Then they showed her a lineup of pictures. And we got these pictures, and, you know, there were some people who looked familiar. She always said that, oh, there's some guys in there who look familiar, but I don't know anybody. We narrowed it down to like six or 12 pictures, one of them being one being who she dated. Nope, she didn't know anybody. And took Well, what about him? Well, he was in there right before I left that night. And I said, why are you just telling us that now? Uh, because they were involved with some big-time dope dealers, and I was afraid they'd kill me. I mean, those are pretty much her exact words. As far as I know, she never retracted her statement about the two men near the railroad tracks. And she still stands by that story today. But it's strange, right? Here you have this guy, Adam, who we're expecting to kind of just write off because his story sounds so far-fetched. But then, someone else connected to the case corroborates it, even when it doesn't do them any good to do so. But what if there was no bearded guy and no clean-shaven guy? What if this wasn't a robbery gone bad?
Kramer kept working the lead. You got to work them until they're dead ends. Now, Adam says he wasn't involved. He just knew what was going to happen. So Kramer asks him, who was it that was involved and what happened? Adam names two guys, but who he names is super strange. Now, it's the policy of the Indiana State Police to never name persons of interest or suspects, which is why we haven't named anyone so far. So for the purposes of our episode, we're going to call the two guys that Adam named Tom and Jerry. And here's why it's so strange that he named them. Tom had been missing for six months by November 1978. At the time, Tom and his girlfriend were last seen in June of 1978. Almost a year to the day after they were seen, his girlfriend's body was discovered in a 55-gallon drum outside Mooresville, Indiana, which is farther south and west than both Johnson County or Speedway that we've been talking about so far. Tom's body has never been discovered. In the early days, they thought perhaps Tom killed his girlfriend, but in present day, without even a blip of Tom ever on anyone's radar, it's assumed he died too and his body has never been discovered. So why is he showing up in this case? People at the time who ran in the same circles knew he was missing. It's a weird suspect to point to, but it wasn't just Adam who pointed to him. Kramer had heard his name come up years before Adam had come into the picture. According to Kramer, shortly after the murders, a couple of girls who knew Jane Freet said they'd seen Tom around, specifically at a Dairy Queen in Avon. One of the girls said that she remembered exactly when because she had just moved and signed a new lease. Now, this is way back when they didn't know if Tom was dead or just skipping town. So Kramer remembered this because he thought he could make an arrest for someone who had a warrant. Now, he wasn't able to locate Tom then. But a year later, in 1979, when Tom's girlfriend's body was found, he went back to that same girl. And she told me the story, and her version was, the last time I saw was it I was moving from one place to another. You know, I was at the Dairy Queen that evening, been moving, walked up, stuck his head in the window. I knew he was on the run from the police, said something to him about it, and he told her, I got a good hideout down south, nobody's ever gonna find me. We took her and had a drawing made of him, yeah, but it looked just like his mug pictures. She said he used to carry a knife in his boot all the time. and. Uh, People keep saying, oh, he was just such a bad guy, been in a lot of trouble, although he'd have been arrested by now. He'd only been arrested like twice, Mm. three times. You know, the odds are he's probably dead, but I went to the apartment complex that she talked about, and, you know, everybody says that he was dead in June when she was dead. The day she moved, signed her lease, was November 4th of 78, two weeks before the burger shift. So what does this mean? The thing is, I don't know. I said before, people's memories are faulty. You're more likely to remember stuff if it happened during a big event in your life, like moving. But we can't say for sure. What I can say for sure is that Tom never surfaced again on police's radar. If he was hiding, he found a damn good spot. Adam's story is that Tom and Jerry loaded the kids into a van and they all drove off together. 
So much changed in Adam's story over the years, but he consistently put himself close by and said that it was a van that they all got loaded into. A van sure made more sense than a Vega. Kramer did try to talk to the other person Adam named, the man that we're calling Jerry. I talked to him for 10, 15 minutes. I'm basically accusing him of four murders. I said, I'd just like to know the answer between you and me, man to man. He never said one word. He didn't say I didn't do it. He didn't say you're wrong. He didn't say, you know, I'm innocent, anything. He didn't say a single word. Kramer and I continued to talk about theories for a while. We moved away from suspects and onto some of the stranger details of the case. Like, for example, Danny was supposed to be long gone by the time everyone was abducted. He had called his parents and specifically asked if he could stay late to help close. Jane's boyfriend recalled that earlier in the day, she seemed distressed and down. She just wanted to be held, and it seemed weird. Mark wasn't supposed to work at all that night. He switched shifts with another employee, and he actually had tried to back out last minute but couldn't. Kramer tells me that there are people who said they saw Mark at a local hangout across the street from Burger Chef before his shift. He had his head down on a table crying and just kept saying that he didn't want to go into work that night. It makes you wonder if any of them had some kind of clue as to what was going to happen, even if it was just an instinctive sixth sense that something about that whole day was wrong. You know, there was actually another employee who came by the restaurant after 12.15. In the papers, you only ever read about the first guy, Brian Kring. But Kramer told me that there was someone else. But when he showed up and was told that the police had been called, he booked it before anyone else would show up. It could have been because he didn't want to get involved. Maybe he was high, but he did have a van. I could tell you 20 more stories like these. 20 more rabbit holes with 50 more good suspects. There's been no shortage of stories and no shortage of theories. Without something concrete to support that, that's all it is, just a story. I think everybody has good motive, but when it comes down to evidence, it just isn't there. You know, I always wonder, are we ever gonna know? I think we will, because the evidence has always been there. There just wasn't much they could do with it back in the 80s. But it's 2019 now, and First Sergeant Bill Dalton is approaching this case in a whole new way. Next time on Red Ball. This series was written, produced, and hosted by me, with production assistance from David Flowers. Thank you to First Sergeant Bill Dalton, retired Detective Jim Kramer, and the Indiana State Police for their participation. Our theme music is Soldier by Flurry and Tommy Prophet. Red Ball is an audio Chuck original. So Chuck, do you approve?